DW, World in Progress. Welcome to the show. I'm Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, as Turkey gears up for high-stakes elections, people displaced by the earthquakes worry about their vote. Uh, we're really talking about hundreds of thousands of voters who don't really have much of an infrastructure left in some of these provinces. Uh, it's going to be a very arduous process. And a researcher who is part of a reconnaissance mission in Turkey talks about the widespread damage. It's a very different thing to read about it or to see pictures and then to actually experience it. It was a very overwhelming experience just because everywhere that we were looking at it was destruction. You're listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. On this week's show, we're traveling to Turkey and Syria to find out how the region is faring after being struck by two major earthquakes in early February, causing widespread damage across an area the size of Germany. In Turkey, roughly three million people have been displaced, and the death toll across the region has surpassed 50,000. That includes loss of life reported across the border in northern Syria. Amid all of this, Turkey is gearing up for a major election that is projected to be a tight race for the country's longtime president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Meanwhile, election observers are concerned that displaced voters will be shut out of the process. Reporter Elania Gustoli has more. Since leaving Hatay in Turkey's south, shortly after the earthquake on February 6, Aliye Arslan and her husband Metin have been living with their two youngest children in a one-bedroom apartment in Ankara, Turkey's capital, more than 600 kilometers from their hometown of Antakya. Since February, the family has settled in Araplar Mahallese, or the Arab district, a cluster of seven to eight-story buildings perched on top of a steep, rocky hill overlooking the city. Despite its apparent isolation, there are regular buses to the center of the city, about 20 minutes away, a playground and even a school. About 4,000 people from the earthquake region in southern Turkey now live here, in social housing made available by the local municipality. Over 50,000 people were killed when two powerful earthquakes struck the country in February and millions were left homeless. With Turkish elections slated for May 14, in what's expected to be its most consequential election in decades, observers fear that hundreds of thousands of displaced people won't be able to vote. Displaced voters were allowed to register in their new cities by March 17. According to Turkey's vice president, Fuat Oktay, only about 345,000 people did so. But the official numbers have not yet been released by the Supreme Election Council. Those who haven't registered will have to go back to their hometowns to vote. The opposition Republican People's Party, CHP, has pledged support for citizens who plan to travel back to the region to vote. Ali and her family are among those voters. We will vote in Hatay because it needs us. We want to vote in Hatay, so we'll go and vote there. On May 14, Turkey will elect both a new president and local representatives in parliament. And it's shaping up to be an election that could end President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's 20-year rule. 
The situation in Hatay was terrible. We had to come here. We had to do it for the children and their education. Aliyah's children, who are 9 and 14, now go to school in Ankara. Their home in Antakya was badly damaged, but they hope to go back once repair work is done, perhaps start a new school year there. They were initially reluctant to even leave the region. Their 23-year-old daughter, Eja, who already lived in Ankara before the earthquake, eventually managed to convince them it was the right thing to do. She too plans to travel back to vote. Uh, the situation is like really bad. There are no houses left. And the city has to be built again. So we need more people to defend our rights in the parliament. Um, that's why we should go there and vote. Berk Essen, a political science professor at Sabanji University in Istanbul, says a large exodus out of the region leaves a lot of uncertainty in terms of how many people will actually be able to cast their vote. Uh, we're really talking about hundreds of thousands of voters who are not registered in their new addresses. And I don't know how many of them will actually make the trip to go back home because it's physically difficult as well as, of course, being costly. And considering the fact you don't really have much of an infrastructure left in some of these provinces, like Hatay, it's going to be a very arduous process. I'm sure some voters will do it, but others will probably not. After coming under fire for their initial response to the earthquake, Erdogan's ruling AKP has tried to woo voters in the region with things like kicking off construction work for 72,000 new homes in the epicenter province of Karan Mamarash, where more than 500,000 were destroyed in the earthquake, all will have to be demolished. The six-party nation alliance led by Gilish Darolu promises to return Turkey to a parliamentary democracy and roll back unorthodox policies that are blamed for the economic crisis that was plaguing the country even before the earthquake. Ertim Orkun is the head of the election watchdog Oive Otezi, Vote and Beyond. The organization aims to send out 100,000 election observers across the country, all volunteers. So far, more than 30,000 people have signed up. He says the mere logistics of voting in the earthquake region will be challenging. The disaster is huge. The houses are no longer there. The schools are no longer there. Honestly, I don't know how... These people will vote there because the places no longer exist. They're still alive, but they don't live there. These people are now in Istanbul, in Ankara, or in the closer areas, living in tents. But still the places they used to vote, the places they used to live no longer exist. Most of these people didn't change their addresses. So a couple of million people are not there anymore. Uh, who will be registered there to vote, so it's a chaos. 23-year-old Aja says the situation has pushed her to the brink. It's becoming hard to still care about any of it, she says. Actually, I can't feel anything about it anymore. Like, uh, I don't believe that the city will be built again in the near future. And I'm hopeless. <laughs> so, um because I'm hopeless, I don't really, maybe it's not correct to say care, but 
It's the way I feel. In such a close election, at such a critical time for the future of the country, the stakes are high. Earthquake survivors and their families fear they will be left behind. Ilenia Gostoli, DW, Ankara. A few weeks after the deadly earthquakes, a group of civil and structural engineers from the UK were sent to Turkey to survey the damage. And what they saw was, as one of the researchers on the team put it, overwhelming. Here's what he had to say. Yes, yeah, so hello. Um, I'm Orestes Adamidis. I'm an associate professor at the University of Oxford. Orestes Adamidis was sent to Turkey on a five-day mission along with a group of engineers from the UK known as EFIT. EFIT stands for the Earthquake Engineering Field Investigation Team. They were looking at why the earthquakes caused so much devastation. Adamidis' expertise is in geotechnical engineering. Right, so we started the mission in the region of Hatay, and we started the five days. The first day we spent in Skenderun, um, and that's a city close to the sea. Then the second Over day, the course of the next five days, Arkia, he and his and team looped Ron, down through Arkia. the southern coastal region of and Turkey then, and then back up to the north and east. At first, the damage was more or less what the team had expected, but then they arrived in a city called Antakya, the capital of Hatay province. Where we knew that the city was destroyed to a very large uh, extent, but it's a very different thing to read about it or to see pictures and then to actually experience it. Um, in Antakya, it, it took us uh, some time uh, before we were able to actually focus and think about engineering again. If Antakya doesn't ring a bell, perhaps the name Antioch does. That's what the city was known as in the ancient world. The city dates back to around 300 BCE, and among the structures that were heavily damaged were a beloved mosque dating back centuries, a historic Greek Orthodox church, which completely collapsed, and the city's Protestant church. Antakya's synagogue was also heavily damaged. Uh, in the beginning, it was a very overwhelming uh, experience just because um, everywhere that we were looking at, it was destruction. Uh, the only people in the city now were crews that were demolishing buildings. There were no longer people living in the city as far as uh, we could see. Uh, and they were still in the process of removing debris. So many buildings collapsed, which meant that they were still uh, finding bodies. So you, you can imagine that yeah, the conditions were uh, really bad. So that, Antakya that was one of the worst affected cities in Turkey. According to the city's mayor, more than 3,000 buildings collapsed. There were very many buildings that um, were collapsed, but also many buildings that had very heavy structural damage, uh, which means that they, they can no longer be used or they were partially collapsed. Um, very many buildings suffered uh, complete collapse. And from an engineering point of view, it was quite interesting to see similar buildings that were very clearly built together by the same contractor. And you see one building that collapsed during the earthquake and then the building next to it, there was a very similar construction that was still standing. As EFID's ground reconnaissance team would discover from surveying the damage and also from their work with Turkish experts, a big problem in Turkey had to do with the building codes. So it has to be said, Turkey had in 1999 a very strong earthquake in Izmit. And after that, 
fairly quickly, actually, just a few years later, it modernized, Turkey modernized uh, its codes and it now has seismic codes that are considered modern, but by far uh, what we saw when we were out there in the field as more important was the enforcement of the codes. So the building quality was just not good enough and we could see from the way buildings had collapsed, which looked new, right? So they were built maybe even in the last sort of 15 years. This should have followed um, the modern codes that Turkey has. And the way they failed was not the way we normally design for buildings to fail. And this is embedded in the codes. According to Turkey's Statistical Institute, over half of the people living in the area hit by the earthquakes were living in buildings built after 2001. But what is also true, according to EFIT's research, is that these codes weren't being sufficiently implemented. This means that we want to guide uh, failure in a building the same way you guide failure in a car so that if you're in a car crash, at the end of it, the car might be completely distorted, but you get out of the cabin safe and you have a lot of the energy of the crash being absorbed by the car being warped in all sorts of ways. We're trying to do the same with buildings and this is included in the code so that you guide failure to prevent the type of pancake collapse that we saw so much uh, in Turkey. This for us is an indication, the type of collapse, but also looking at the details of what we could see when we were there in terms of reinforcement and in terms of how beam and column joints had failed and so on, that there, there seems to be a, a significant issue with uh, quality control and enforcement of the codes. If the codes were enforced, despite the small things that you know could be improved here and there in the codes, if the codes had been enforced, I think we would be uh, looking at a different picture in the field in terms of damage, in terms of loss of life as well. You're listening to World in Progress with me, Kathleen Schuster. Coming up in the second half of this week's show, we're going to hear more about the nitty-gritty of what building back might look like in Turkey. But first, we're going to hear about how Syria has been affected by these events and where aid efforts have been slow to get off the ground. Tilo Schwana sends this report. It's presented by Ben Ressler. Tents stand in front of the makeshift hospital near Idlib. Because there's not enough space in the building, a former school, the tents serve as an isolation ward for the sick. The consequences of the quake are still clearly noticeable here in northwestern Syria, according to Dr. Hussein al-Sawadi. Many hospitals here in the area are now located in schools or residential buildings. But that's not the only problem. There is a lack of bandages, medicines and equipment. This severely limits how much we can help. Many medical devices were destroyed in the massive earthquake in early February. They were buried under the rubble of collapsing buildings or simply toppled over. Many sensitive measuring devices and x-ray machines were so badly damaged that they are no longer functional. According to El Sawadi, it was precisely this equipment that was so urgently needed to treat the many injured. 
At the moment, however, he's concerned about something entirely different. Cholera infections becoming more frequent again. This is certainly partly due to the collapse of the infrastructure. The supply of drinking water and the lack of sewage systems are a big problem, especially for the many people who are now living in tents. And the threat of disease spreading in northwestern Syria is only growing bigger. Experts fear that as temperatures rise, the number of cholera cases is also likely to increase significantly in the coming months. One reason for the poor sanitary situation in the region, which isn't controlled by the Assad regime, is also the desperate need for accommodation among the population. According to the United Nations, more than 5 million people in Syria have been made homeless by the earthquake. Many have had to move into tent cities. Hundreds of thousands of people were already housed in huge camps near the Turkish-Syrian border. At the end of March, severe storms destroyed around 3,000 tents and camps in the region, according to UN aid organizations. According to El Sawadi, the situation was already difficult before. It's not easy for us to provide aid in the camps. The disposal of waste water is also a problem. The people are housed in tents, which hardly protect them from the cold or heat. Although there is still a lack of many things, convoys with UN aid supplies are now regularly crossing the Turkish border into northwestern Syria. After the earthquake, many victims in the insurgency-controlled region had to wait a long time for the first trucks to arrive. The UN Emergency Aid Coordinator has since publicly apologized for this. By the end of March, more than 1,200 trucks carrying UN aid had reached the area around Idlib. But the suffering in the earthquake zone in northwestern Syria continues, Al Sawadi says. Many here have lost their children or are now severely disabled. Panic attacks and depression have increased massively among the people here. For many, a return to everyday life is still unthinkable after this disaster. But thanks to the UN emergency aid plan, 4.9 million people in Syria will be provided with the most important things by the end of May. But the United Nations is worried about what will come after that. Aid programs for Syria that had nothing to do with the earthquake are still significantly underfunded. Ben Ressler with that report from Tilo Spanel. Earlier in the show, we heard from a researcher named Orestes Anamidis, who was part of a team of engineers sent to Turkey to survey the damage following two deadly earthquakes. A big question right now is how Turkey will build back, and when, and where exactly. Here's what he had to say. I think the major issue was not necessarily the codes themselves, it was code compliance. So the question is, will there be uh, code compliance for these buildings? Um, One of the causes of devastation that comes up a lot in conversation with Adamides is the role of something called liquefaction. Yes, so liquefaction uh, is a phenomenon that happens in granular soils, and this is most often sand, uh, that are under the water table, and this often ends up being close to a body of water, it could be close to a river or a lake. Essentially what happens is that when an earthquake strikes and there's water present in these areas, it tries to pass up through the sandy soil, but it can't fast enough. So pressure builds up in the water, and instead of shooting up through the sandy soil, the sand becomes suspended in the water, 
And this mix of water and sand basically becomes sludge in motion. So whereas before you might have had a significant building even, um, being able to stand uh, on what might look like firm ground, when you have liquefaction, it loses all of its strength. It becomes, it becomes soft, essentially, like you have now your building standing on toothpaste. And that means that these buildings often suffer a very significant settlement, uh, which means they go down very significantly um, and very significant rotations. And we experienced that in different locations, and it was particularly obvious in a town called Goldbush in the northern northeast of the area we visited. And there we had, we saw buildings, uh, many buildings with more than a meter of, of settlement. There was a building that there were stairs to go up to the entrance and we measured that the level of the entrance was now below ground. So we added, um, you know, the steps and the current level of the entrance. And we think that it has settled by almost 1.8 meters. So this is a very significant, <laughs> very significant number. Yeah. Given the widespread devastation, engineers will have many factors to consider, liquefaction being just one example, when it's time to rebuild. Turkey has a very strong uh, construction sector. It's a big driver of the economy. Um, I, I can't really say if it's uh, within the realm of possibility because I'm, I'm, I'm not quite certain about what is the time frame that was given. But certainly it has a very strong construction industry, so it could, it could build rapidly. The major question is, how will this building happen? Um, what the quality is going to be and how it will be controlled? But also there's a question of um, where it will happen and what will happen with the areas of construction. If it happens, for example, in Antakya, if that means demolishing buildings and then reconstructing, there is a question there about... Uh, ownership of land, so some people own the land. There is a question of whether they will have to give it up and how this will happen um, and how people will be compensated for that. And also there is a significant question, I think, about traditional architecture and historic structures and whether these will be maintained in their current locations, whether they will be allowed to be um, restored so there's a lot of questions there to be managed. And Adamides says Ethit is concerned about the role of local communities in these decisions about rebuilding. So th there are um, cases in the past where uh, after an earthquake, the central government has been tempted to essentially buy out, let's say, the land from a lot of the owners, but at a very low rate that is actually centrally dictated. And that means that people not only lose their house or their building uh, after the earthquake, they could potentially also lose the land. And that can, especially for populations that are more uh, vulnerable, that are maybe um, less well off, they, they might not be able to afford a new house in the area where they used to live. So you could also have population movement that are somehow enforced because these people, uh, they might be forced to sell the land at a low rate and then not be able to afford a property where they where they were living before. So I, I don't. I'm not saying that this is how it will be managed. I don't really know, but this is a risk uh, of something that has happened in the past, and 
should probably be avoided uh, in this case. The one thing he doesn't doubt, though, is whether Turkey will rebuild. The historically important city of Antakya being a prime example. There's no way around uh, building again. And Antakya itself is a city that is a very old historic city. And in its long history, it has actually been destroyed multiple times by earthquakes. So I think in such such cases, it's inevitable that people will have to rebuild there. Um, And that's why what I'm saying is that the uh, models that we have for the amount of accelerations we expect perhaps need to be updated. But by far more, uh, more important is that the building codes, the seismic codes that are there need to be enforced and this needs to be done very carefully. I think that would make the biggest uh, difference. Orestes Ademidis is an associate professor of engineering at Oxford University. He was deployed to Turkey along with other engineers by the Earthquake Engineering Field Investigation Team following the earthquakes in February. He was speaking to me from Athens, Greece. Among the displaced in Turkey are, of course, artists and musicians. In the case of an orchestra from the city of Antakya, they found themselves unexpectedly put center stage in the aftermath of the earthquake. Reporter Uwe Lüb has more. His report is presented by Neil King. Ali Uhur is in his element when he conducts the Hatay Symphony Orchestra. He founded it four years ago when he brought together a range of musicians in the city of Antakya, professionals, teachers and students at the conservatory. But things have been difficult. First the pandemic complicated matters, then the earthquake struck, killing four out of the orchestra's 100-odd active members. But Ali Uhur says giving up is out of the question. Our city is destroyed. The musicians have left it, but they remain loyal to the orchestra. I've stayed in the city. He's very busy. His orchestra is set to perform, including in Turkey's largest city, Istanbul. Before the earthquake, Uhur's orchestra struggled to receive attention. Now it's known almost nationwide. In the past, no one paid any attention to us. Unfortunately, after the tragic earthquake, that's changed. But this is good, of course, because it ensures the orchestra will continue to exist. Ali Uhur's orchestra plays not only classical music, but also folk music, typical of the region, which may in a sense help to alleviate some of the suffering and pain caused by February's earthquake. We will make music that tells of the suffering caused by the earthquake, of silence, of loneliness, of being left alone. But we also want to make music that leads out of this suffering. In other words, we want to make music that tells the story of this city. Michel is passionate about music too. He's the drummer of Turkey's Antakya-based rock band Mengene. But the building where they used to rehearse and teach students partially collapsed, and they were only able to salvage a few items, he says. 
Haftanın 3-4 günü zaten düzenli sahneler alır. It was like a second home for us. We didn't just rehearse and teach classes there. We used the studio like a cafe. We'd spend the whole day there. Kullandığımız bir yerdi. Gerçekten de ikinci evimiz gibiydi. Bütün günümüz orada geçerdi. He hopes that one day they will return to Antakya. Someday when the scars of the earthquake have healed. Michel says the disaster has changed him. He now enjoys playing the reed flute, which he never actually liked. My old reed flute teacher died in the earthquake. May he rest in peace. Now I've suddenly developed a passion for this instrument and I'm practicing on it more often. Something has changed inside me. Other artists describe similar changes. Suna Katal, a painter, was working on a solo exhibition before the earthquake struck and was looking to take on a job teaching students. But since the earthquake, other things have become far more urgent. Right now we're fighting for our lives in Antakya. Meeting our personal needs takes priority. Art is taking a back seat for now. And although art may be secondary right now, that doesn't mean the massive earthquake won't find expression in her creative endeavors, she says. I've made some initial sketches. I'll use them later. And of course, the suffering will be reflected in my paintings. I'm just waiting to create a suitable environment. An environment where she can once more let her creativity roam free. She will set up a new studio, even though that will prove challenging. That report by Uva Lub, presented by Neil King. And that's all we have for you on this week's show. To listen back to this and other reports from World in Progress, you can check us out at DW.com or download the show from Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any feedback or questions, just drop us a line at worldinprogress at DW.com. This week's show was produced by Vipka Tegtmaya and me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineer was Michael Springer. Be sure to tune in again next week. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany.